Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our academic guest today is Tracy George, professor of law and political science at Vanderbilt University. We'll be discussing her article, The Double-Edged Sword of Credentials, Gender and M&A, which is forthcoming in the BYU Law Review. She co-authored this article with Albert Yoon of the University of Toronto and Mitu Gulati of the University of Virginia. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. I'm also excited to welcome two practitioners who will provide commentary on this article. Ava Davis is a partner and the chair of the Transactions Department at Winston & Strawn, and Jermaine Gurr is a partner in the M&A practice of White & Case. Tracy, Ava, Jermaine, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. This is Tracy. Thank you, Andrew. This is Jermaine. Looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate the opportunity. This is Eva. I thought we might start with a discussion of the article, and then I'm looking forward to some practitioner reactions and comments on the article in a few moments. Tracy, I wonder if you could help us set the stage a bit. This article is focused on the gender gap in the legal profession with a focus on the large law firm setting. I wonder if you could talk about the current state of that gender gap in the law firm setting what does the gender gap mean for the profession? And what might it mean for a country in which lawyers are often called upon to fill some of the most important leadership roles in civil society and government and business and so forth? So the gender gap exists across law and the legal profession. Despite what TV and movies present, women, as well as people of color, are not presiding over courtrooms, leading prosecutors' offices, or cold calling on students in a law school classroom in numbers commensurate with their numbers in law school and in the larger society. You ask the important question, though, why does that matter? Why is it significant that women are underrepresented compared to what we would expect ex ante? And women in leadership, both in law and elsewhere, is imperative because it impacts socioeconomic and political dynamics in the country. And it's significant because it reflects those dynamics, those very same dynamics. It is essentially both cause and effect. Over the last few decades, have women been making any gains in the nation's top law firms in terms of the representation in the ranks that we might expect from the number of women who are attending law schools? And are these gains happening at the associate levels, at the partnership level? Are these positions being created equal, or could the data be masking some perhaps finer distinctions within the legal profession, within law firms, perhaps gender gaps within a gender gap? Yeah. So on your first question, have women been making gains? Absolutely. Nearly half of all law firm associates are women, consistent with the fact that for about four decades, women have made up about half of entering JD classes in American law schools. And we don't only see women in the associate positions. Right now, about a quarter of all partners in U.S. law firms are women. Now, not all partnerships are equal. Women are slightly less likely to be equity partners than non-equity. The ratio is about three to two. But nevertheless, these are very strong numbers and show a trend towards something closer to parity with where we see women in the pipeline in terms of law school. But then you ask the question, right, what about finer distinctions or gender gaps within gender gaps? And I think that's the really interesting question and the one that we wanted to focus on. 
The research on the gender gap in the legal profession has really focused on the pipeline to partnership. So what happens from applicants to law school, attendance at law school, entering in as an associate in a law firm, becoming a partner, and view partnership as the end of the process. But as Eva and Jermaine can discuss in more detail and with more knowledge, that is far from the end. A lot happens after partnership. And what's very significant after partnership, especially in a practice like M&A, is to be at the top of the deal, which is to say, be the lead attorney in the matter, or what is often called the relationship partner for the relationship with the client. And we were interested in looking at that because we suspected, based on conversations with people like Eva and Jermaine, that those numbers would not match the numbers we were seeing in the equity partnership ranks. And what we find in our project that we're going to talk about more is that, indeed, there's a tremendous drop-off. About 20% of M&A attorneys in the United States are women, but only about 9% are leading the deal. So that drop from becoming a partner to actually becoming a partner in a leadership position is really important to try to understand. I wonder if you could maybe situate the importance of understanding this question of or this gap in terms of leadership positions within the legal profession, being the top of the deal, being the relationship partner. Why is that important on its own terms? And how does that question, that gap maybe differ a little bit from focus on the pipeline, focus on the entry or the middle levels or folks making it to the partnership level in the first place? What's the importance of those distinctions? The importance of the distinction, I think, can be measured in terms of both its value directly, as you described, and its value as signal of some underlying phenomena that we can't observe directly as researchers. In terms of the former, the question of why is it significant in its own terms, within law firms, it's well established that the M&A practice and M&A partners have an outsized impact on management leadership of law firms, what law firms are doing, where they're going. And then outside of law firms, those same partners have an impact on what is happening in society. There's no question in the United States. Obviously, everyone listening to this podcast knows and understands that mergers and acquisitions are extraordinarily important to our economy and have an impact on political decisions as well. So if you think about the people who lead those processes, who inform how mergers and acquisitions are structured, when they occur, with what companies, that's an incredible amount of power in the world writ large. But then even within the law firm, managing partners are more likely to be M&A partners, people who are on the executive committee, the high earners in a law firm. So If you want to be at the top of a firm, if you want to control what your firm is doing, being an M&A partner, particularly an M&A partner in a leadership position in M&A deals is an, an important way to get there. And the reality is we're looking here at people who want to lead deals, who've already demonstrated that ambition and capacity. And I think that makes it you know, interesting to see as a researcher, from my perspective, what's happening there. In terms of your, what is a hard question, what can we actually observe about what's going on? We're having to make some guesses about what's going on behind the data. We can observe this drop-off that women are underrepresented, even controlling for various factors. But the nuances of what's going on are so much harder. I think that's one of the reasons people don't look at elite law practice and the elite positions within elite law practice, because you don't have a big N. 
You don't have the capacity to just let the math do the work for you. In a way, as someone who's studied the pipeline as well, it's just far easier to try to get a handle on. I don't know, even Jermaine probably can speak more to what that nuance would be. Sure. Eva, Jermaine, any thoughts there? This is Eva Davis. So thanks. And thanks, Tracy. Uh, maybe I should call you Professor George, but Tracy, for all the background here, I think it, it really is nuanced and it really is complicated. And one thing that the professors pulled out in their article was they used a concept of sort of ripple effect and butterfly effect. What are these small events that may have an enduring effect on your career, whether it's opportunities early on to lead particular deals with particular partners who might have influence or better opportunities with clients. How encouraging is your law firm environment? Frankly, how supporting is your spouse, which I think actually we could have a whole seminar on, but how do those ripple effects affect you throughout your entire career? And then there's also just a level of hard work that I think is a very significant predictor. And it's not to suggest at all that men are more likely to work hard or women are less likely to work hard. But there are certain points in time in your career where your clients are really can be, well, frankly, your clients can be incredibly demanding all the time. But are there points in your career, whether it's when you're raising a family or otherwise, where some of those really tough demands that are coming from those clients maybe can impact you to make subtly slightly different choices in your career? that might have a longer-term impact. And sometimes those things can have an impact, again, over over multiple years, but it is complicated. I'd be curious, Jermaine, to hear your thoughts. Eva, and thank you, everyone. Thank you, Tracy, for all of the commentary and for the paper. It was really interesting to read. I agree with you, Eva. There's so many different factors that go into why the results are what they are, even if we are seeing improvement. An interesting thing that you mentioned in going to the ripple and butterfly effect is on kind of the decisions that people might make and that women might make. And I guess that results in a broader question when it comes to families and who's bearing the brunt of the work. And Ava alluded to this too, as to who's bearing the brunt of the work when it comes to families, whether it's taking care of parents or taking care of children. And largely in our society, unfortunately, that's still women. And as a result, you likely see a drop off. You do see, I've seen a drop off of, of women mid-career as a result. As Ava mentioned, I think spousal support and societal support in that regard might help change whether women would choose to continue in their careers in those moments when they're being pulled in multiple different directions. Another interesting aspect, at least for me, is networking. A lot of times our clients are still men. And so networking becomes a really important integral part of relationship building. And when you're a young attorney, a female attorney, those situations might not always be comfortable to network with other people, with your business counterparts, if they're men. Myself as a young associate at Wild Gotchall, at the time, the law firm had a great program where they had provided some funding for associates for business development purposes to go out and network with their business counterparts. So other kind of junior mid-level business people. The intent was to help associates learn how to build those skills on business development. At the end of the year, we reflected back as the associates. What, what had happened is that the male associates had used all their fundings, had taken people out to do networking. And the women, in large part, hadn't used the money. And when the partners were asking questions, and this was an informal program, the women in discussion said, I don't necessarily feel comfortable asking my male colleague at a client to go out to dinner 
with me because he might be married. I might be married. I just don't feel comfortable in that setting. And I don't think those nuances are necessarily understood by the broader group of people who are working day to day. But it was interesting to me at the time, this is 12 or 10 years ago, to hear those thoughts from other women attorneys. And the men definitely didn't have the same perspective in that. Just a, just an anecdote. You know, I want to pick up on something Jermaine said here, because this actually a comment she made, this word comment she made at the end was frankly a critical decision in my career. I was at a large law firm talking the article about a Chambers-ranked M&A, Chambers-ranked M&A, and I was working on a lot of the firm's institutional clients. And most of the decisions, most of the hiring decision, interestingly at the time, wasn't really being made by the general counsel. It was really being made by the board of directors who were deciding what law firms to hire on what M&A deals. And then you hoped you were well positioned within the firm if they came in to get those deals. But ultimately, decision on hiring is being made by the board of directors, who at the time, and I've been now practicing for 30 years, tended to be senior white men. And when you talk about networking and you're a 30-year-old woman and am I going to be taking out 60-year-old men, it just, it looked to me like a daunting task. This was going to be decades when I was going to be able to start to really build these relationships on my own. And I had an opportunity this was, again, by another law firm to go and work on the private equity side, which you're going to say, okay, that sounds crazy. That's mainly men too. But in a lot of the private equity deals, it is men making those decisions, but those men were in their 30s and to some extent 40s. And that just seemed more possible to me. I just, it was at least we're going to be lining up on the age front so that when I get comfortable networking, and actually for me, I was much more comfortable once I was married because it was like, of course, I'm not asking you on a date. I am married and we're going to go network and do some event. It became much more possible to me. And that's what I've been doing ever since. My clients are mainly men. They are in private equity and they have typically been in their 30s and 40s, which meant early on we were the same age. And frankly, now I'm older than them. And there's a different dynamic there too, because then I tell them what to do and they do it and our phone calls can become very efficient. I think that these experiences really reflect the multitude of variables that go into this gender gap at the top of the top. And this article is, of course, an empirical examination of that gender gap. And with that in mind, thinking about the complexity and the challenge of this investigation, Tracy, I wondered if you could introduce the listeners to the study that you and your co-authors conducted. What discrete research questions did you set out to answer? What sorts of data did you use to conduct your analysis? And, and you did both a, a qualitative and a quantitative study in this paper. How did the qualitative and the quantitative support each other, inform your findings in both those areas? And I would love to hear about that. And then, of course, to, to hear about your key findings from that empirical study. That's great. That's a lot <clears throat> to try to do. But I'm actually going to start with the last question you asked, that interaction between qualitative and quantitative is an empiricist. You make a choice about what type of data to use and why it makes sense. But listening to even Germaine, I was taking copious notes and thinking about how rich the story is and how it explains things that we observed in the data that we can only speculate about. And it highlights that really good research should be both. So good empirical research needs to marry quantitative and qualitative so that it's not merely a set of anecdotes or individuals' experiences, but actually speaks to a larger event 
to try to see are these outlier experiences or are they representative experiences that the data also hold. So let me go to your data question. I love working with my co-authors, Albert and Me Too. They're both brilliant theorists, brilliant thinkers, brilliant empiricists. But I find that and for the researchers, the scholars I'm listening in, I find that we're really attracted to questions that are extremely difficult to answer where there's not ready available data. And so in this particular case, our research question was to ask what explains who's at the top of the deal. And we wanted to look at M&A because mergers and acquisitions practice is such a competitive practice and the people who choose M&A practice are quite ambitious. So we would assume that they have the same priors that they want to be at the top of the deal. They want to be a leader. We were also attracted to the fact that there hasn't been a lot of study of M&A attorneys. So we have two research questions that are related. The first is what explains from the universe of M&A attorneys and private law firms, which attorneys end up being the relationship partner, end up being the individual representing the company on the deal? And then a related question, which is focusing only on those individuals who are able to reach that top spot, what accounts for whether or not they're likely to be men or women? And the reason for the latter question is it allows us to really focus in on individuals who must have whatever the underlying characteristics are that are hard to measure, the soft things about them. Not just ambition, I think, for this group, but maybe interpersonal skills or strong networking skills, the things that Jermaine and Eva were talking about that m and practices try to develop in their associates. So to do that, we leveraged a lot of existing databases that were not intended for this purpose, including those aimed at headhunters, so lots of data about lawyers. We used techniques that allowed us to leverage things like names as a source of information. So basically, we merge multiple data sets, including publicly available data sets like Edgar, which is the site used to register all mergers and acquisitions. So lots of databases, lots of data sources, more detail for those who are inclined in the paper. And, and then we're able to look closely through the quantitative measures, through both basic statistics and regression, at what accounts for those differences. But we see the differences, we see these variables that are or are not predictive, but we can't always get to this deeper level. And I'll just speak briefly about something, but I'm happy to talk about it more. We started looking at what we think of as the COVID-impacted years. We're still looking at 2020, 2021, and we'll start looking at 2022 as the data comes in. And we've made some interesting preliminary findings that women seem to be doing a lot better in this period, which at first glance was counterintuitive. Because the data coming out of other fields like, is that women are doing worse because if they have children, the children at our home, childcare issues, as Jermaine mentioned, are disproportionately for opposite sex couples born by the woman in the partnership. But now, given what even Jermaine were saying, I wonder if the reason women were doing better is because networking was less important because no one could go out to dinner. No one was going to the golf course to play golf. And relatedly, there's some good evidence that when you meet with people by Zoom, that it levels some of the playing field because you're less likely to respond to the fact that they match you on gender and race because those things are minimized in a Zoom environment. I don't know. I don't even Jermaine. How do you react to our finding that women are doing better than we expected during this COVID period? This is Eva. I guess I would say one year does not a trend make. I think I've said that to you before. I was certainly pleased, but I do think that Zoom is a stabilizer, equalizer. And interestingly, what it also meant was it was really hard for if you didn't have those pre-existing relationships 
you weren't going to create them during the past two years. The pre-existing relationship had to exist. You know, so somebody who had them benefited, someone who didn't have them did not benefit. I can't say why that worked on gender lines. I'm happy about the information. I can't say why that is. I'd be curious to remain to hear what you have to say. I don't know. I, I agree with you, Eva, that it's only one year of information. I do think if I had to take a wild guess, I do think that networking became less important, but it also became more important insofar as while we were not meeting in physical places, we weren't going out to dinners, we weren't going to play golf, we weren't spending our times in person. We certainly had to do a lot. And Eva, let me know your thoughts. We certainly had to do a lot to stay connected and be creative about how we stayed connected with our clients, with our associates. And I don't know how different people decided to do that, whether it was just by Zoom. I can tell you that I am closer with my clients after the two years of COVID than I was before. And that's in part because we connected on really personal levels during that time. We had conversations about what we were going through. We had conversations. I had conversations with some of my PE clients because they were trying to figure out whether or not they send their kids to, they do the Zoom schooling or they do, they try to hire a teacher or a tutor for a year. And maybe they felt more comfortable talking to me because they felt like I was dealing with some of those issues as a woman, even though most of the people that I was talking to were men. I do think there was a lot of networking opportunities, but it was a different type of networking. It was really personal and, and creative in how you were getting that contact. Eva, what, what do you think? How did you deal with two years of yeah, Zoom? No, I agree. I, I agree. I, you were connecting on certainly a personal level. And you were also doing other things. And Jermaine, you're active on LinkedIn. Jermaine and I are both active on LinkedIn. So people were reminded about in a professional way on professional content. And you were doing other things that you weren't doing in the past and wondering, does it because I'm not out speaking and engaging and going to events? Yeah. So we'll see if this continues. I hope it does, Tracy. Tracy, you and your co-authors, you generated a lot of data from the qualitative and the quantitative studies for this paper. But I wonder if there are any really big picture takeaways that you find from your studies? What are some of the big conclusions or findings that you reached? The big conclusion or finding is that we observe that there is almost parity when lawyers start out, but we find that parity disappears as lawyers advance and a particular note after they make partner. There is a lot that we cannot see about how partners move to relationship partners, but we can see with the data and quite clearly and robustly is that credentials matter more for women than men. We see in the data that we move from 20% of partners, right? Equity partners are women to fewer than 10% become relationship partner in terms of trying to explain what accounts for succeeding or not. It can't be the normal stories, right? The normal storyline that's given is that the leaky pipeline for women in law can be attributed to being insufficiently ambitious, investing in other parts of their lives, such as family, personal interest, or being more drawn to public service. Those simply cannot be used to explain the drop-off from equity partner to relationship partner. And the reality is, I think, based on what we're observing and research that's been done elsewhere, that it's the dynamics that occur between the existing relationship partners 
and potential or prospective relationship partners amongst the equity partners in the firm and in the M&A group, and the degree to which at that stage, men and women are treated the same way. What we find is that for a woman to be successful to move to relationship partner, they have to be better on the basic credentials, especially ones that are in some ways in the rear view mirror. So where did you go to law school? If you went to Harvard and Stanford, that's much more important. Certainly women need to go to a top six school to feel that they can be confident in their success. Why would those paper credentials matter in a setting where you've already made equity partner, you have a long list of accomplishments. Sociologists and other scholars who've studied these dynamics, psychologists would say, is that it's attributable to the degree to which you match with the person who's meeting with you. Do they see someone like themselves? And if they don't, then they're going to look to those paper credentials. And we just, in our data, women from bottom tier law schools do not become lead on the deal. Men do. And so I think that's the big takeaway. Credentials are much more important for women than men. With those big takeaways in mind, I wonder if any of the panelists, uh, Tracy, Eva, or Jermaine, if you have any reactions or thoughts to the paper or the big takeaway, and perhaps even more important than the findings, I wonder about solutions. Are there solutions that are currently in the works or that are, are currently being implemented that might help address some of the gaps identified in the paper? Or are there perhaps solutions that might need to be introduced that might be able to reduce this gap at the top of the top? A few things. And look, this is complicated. And these are small, little institutional changes that hopefully maybe have a ripple effect or a butterfly effect from your article. But I I can't say that they will fix everything that many law firms, or at least some law firms are doing, including mine um, at Winston and Strong. So the first is when I first started practicing again, 20 to 30 years ago, it was really cool to go to a firm that had what we call a free market system where you could come and pick and choose and do the things you wanted to work on. And if you didn't like something, you didn't have to work on it versus one that came through very much an assigning system. And you're told this is your next project that you're going to work on. I think we found anecdotally and through internal data, actually my past two law firms, that tends to hurt women and diverse attorneys who, because of what Tracy said, happens with clients where clients tend to pick people or be more comfortable with people sociologically who look like them or are like them or have the same background. That, in fact, may be also happening in a free market assigning system. So making sure you're much more, I hate to say the system is a little bit more rigid, the system is a little bit more rigid in terms of how things are signed so that perhaps your women and diverse attorneys get some opportunities early on. One of the other items I also think that's a little bit counterintuitive is your parental leave policies. It used to be that the women got the parental leave and it was anywhere for six, 10, 12 weeks. A lot of law firms now it's up to six months for women getting maternity leave. And what that meant was if, and I saw this in action, I heard partners make these comments. A woman who was recently married, say at 30, everyone's looking at her, she's going to have kids soon. And you're making critical decisions about going back to relationship partner, at least critical decisions about who you're going to put on your most important accounts at the firm. If you think someone has a a likelihood of maybe stepping back or taking a maternity leave or doing something like that, and these subtle little changes and decisions that might be made, are they going to put a guy on that instead? And so we said, let's have parental leave where the men get the same leave as the women, the same six weeks, 12 weeks, four months, five months, six months, so that when the man gets married and he's in his early to mid thirties and he's making decisions about his family and life planning, he's just as likely to take that leave. And let's encourage it. And our team leaders essentially almost force the men to take that leave so that when some of the partners are making decisions about who to assign and staff on something, 
they will not be more inclined to pick a man over a woman because the man is just as likely to take that parental leave. And I think another aspect that I implemented as transactions department chair when I came on three months ago was, it goes back to the comment that Tracy made about mentorship and sponsorship. Mentorship is certainly when someone you know gives you some advice and ideas and things you might be doing in your career, whether it's a client-related or firm-related or networking-related, and they're a really good sounding board to help give you, again, some ideas and advice and encouragement. A sponsor is really someone who has power within the law firm who can basically make things happen and affect your trajectory and affect your compensation and affect opportunities that you work on and can basically reach down and pull you up. And so why don't we take our most important people at the firm, the ones who sit on the executive committee, the compensation committee, who have the clients in the law firm, and also goes back to affirmatively taking steps, assign them to our associates and basically say, you are assigned to this associate in the next one or two years. Here's a list of things that you are required to do with them including giving them opportunities to work on your matters, taking them to pitches, introducing them to clients, and making a difference. And it's not very obvious to associates necessarily in the law firm of who the partners are with power, with the clients that are making these key decisions. It's not necessarily obvious. They tend to gravitate to the partners who are just the nice people, fun to have lunch with. You know, whatever activity you guys do, hike, golf, like somebody great to hang out with they might not necessarily have those client relationships that can impact your career. So we need to affirmatively take the steps to put the people with the power in a position, particularly with our women and diverse attorneys, to give them opportunities to have those relationships. So I've got some more ideas too, but I don't want to dominate the floor. I'm happy to have Jermaine give some thoughts. As women leaders in law firms, I'm reminded, I went to an all-girls high school, and I'm reminded of always of something that I learned there, which is you as women in that setting are the leader, not the exception. And it's critical for for everyone, but certainly the women too. When you are in these leadership positions, even though you're busy and have are being pulled in multiple directions to step up and be the sponsor. As Ava mentioned, I think everyone has to do it because as we've learned on this in this conversation and with the paper, there aren't enough women at the top yet to put all the burden on the women. But as women leaders, we need to be sponsors for the young women attorneys who are rising to the level of junior partner or mid-level associate or even junior associates in all the ways that Eva mentioned, whether it's taking someone to pitch, having them participate on calls, having women lead those calls and making sure that they're comfortable in that situation. I agree also on the parental leave point that Eva mentioned. It's really important not just to window dress on parental leave, but to encourage everybody to take that leave so that it's viewed as a real benefit that anyone at the law firm can take advantage of and doesn't really affect one person or one gender's career versus another. I do think that you're seeing coming out of COVID companies in general questioning their platform on how they work and where they work and becoming more flexible and malleable to providing people with opportunities to work in different places. Pre-COVID, unfortunately, I think there was a perception that if someone or a woman was working from home, that there was really no work being done. I, I think that's been that I know that's been challenged during COVID. And we can see just I can see from our number at our firm, I'm sure Ava's in the same boat, that people were working really hard. Lawyers were working really hard during 
COVID, regardless of whether they were sitting in a hotel room and at home, wherever they needed to be to get their work done. And I, I think that will change the landscape of how we view who's working when they're not in the office and not necessarily having that old school FaceTime that's often required or was previously required at law firms and other big businesses. I think, Andrew, the thing I would simply add is I was attracted probably like you to become a law professor because I love research. I love scholarship. I love my administrative work at Vanderbilt. But I really love teaching the next generation of lawyers. I love watching their careers. I love the way in which we as professors can be part of shaping the law and leaders in the law and how important that is. And I, when I talk to people like Jermaine and Eva, it makes me feel confident that we'll ensure that these important legal institutions and leadership positions are filled by those who are best at doing them, but to the interest of us all. And I think that fundamentally, the reason that Albert and Me Too and I asked this question, and we're also looking at the same question with consideration to race and ethnicity, as well as intersectional questions, it's because fundamentally, we want a level playing field. And that's what we're trying to assess is, do we have it? And if we don't have it, what seems to explain it? How can the richer context that we get from those living in this world, even Jermaine, um, what can they tell us to try to understand what you raised, which is not just understanding what's going on, but also trying to think about innovative ways to address and resolve the issues that we identify through the data. I think this has been a really great conversation about both the data, the academic theory of this issue, and also the practitioner perspective. I want to give all the panelists an opportunity to maybe offer some closing thoughts before we close our conversation. Are there any thoughts that folks want to close with, any open questions they would like to pose to our listeners or maybe raise for future investigation? I'm happy to go first. This is Jermaine. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Eva. This has been exciting, fun. What a great opportunity to think about these really critical issues. I'm excited about the future and in particular, the future for women, for women attorneys. Law firms in large part are looking at their policies, are looking at what they're doing and are really focusing on, to Eva's point, substantive change, not just window dressing, but really finding not just mentor, don't just call it mentorship, call it sponsorship, as Eva mentioned, really kind of pooling people up. I think there are more women leaders in large law firms. And while it makes up maybe 20% of the class, those women leaders are, and male leaders are interested and want to see other women succeed. I think COVID has helped provide a platform of work that will allow both men and women to work in more flexible ways. And that will help in becoming successful when you're trying to deal in various points of your life with different things that may come up. I'm excited to see what happens in the future. And I think we'll continue to see great strides in this area. Andrew, thank you so much for providing this opportunity to come on the show and talk to you and these brilliant women and leaders. I think that just by listening to this podcast and thinking about the issue, we're all engaged, right, whether researching it or reflecting on it in the work that we do in thinking of the dynamics of gender, race, ethnicity, individual identity, and how we ensure that there's fairness and equity 
in the work that we do and understand the impact that it has, which takes us back to your initial question that started us off. Why should we even care? And I think fundamentally we have to care because it affects the dynamics of the country and how things happen, how things work. So I would really welcome if anyone's listening has a chance um, to offer some feedback. I can speak for me to an Albert. We would uh, be delighted to get that feedback and hear thoughts. Very much welcome. Well, this is Eva. I agree with everything that Jermaine just said. And I actually want to use this opportunity to give a shout out to Karen Ulrich Stacy at the Diversity Lab. She very much cares about these issues across law firms, not just in the M&A context and who leads deals and had a competition she put together back in 2016 about what we can do to try to institutionally fix some of these issues at law firms. And the teams there came up with the concept of the Mansfield rule, where you're basically when some of the key leadership positions come up, whether it's with an office or a department, your executive committee, your compensation committee, that you are putting up at least three women or diverse candidates to fill those spots. And the idea wasn't so much that this was meant to be some sort of quota or kind of affirmative action, but are you thinking carefully about who the people in your law firm are? Are you just instantly going to the most senior male? Are you thinking about your law firm and its future and who has contributions to be made at each of these levels? And law firms are taking this pretty seriously. I'm sure I know my firm, Winston Strata, is I'm sure White and Case is Dead Germain's firm. And we have been since that time in 2016, affirmatively been putting women and diverse candidates into these roles. And a lot of times they're the ones that are coming up with these ideas. They've seen institutionally how their career path was affected. And we get, Jermaine and I discussed sponsorship before and what things are we putting affirmatively in place to make those things happen. And I'm not suggesting that the men couldn't have come up with those ideas, and many of them do, and some of them are our biggest supporters. But if you lived it and walked that walk, you can be there to figure out what are some of the cracks in the system that I, I want to fix. And I've seen that happen much more actively over the last five or six years than I did in the earlier parts of my career. And my firm even put me in some leadership positions as well. And so I'm very hopeful. And I also, for the women and diverse candidates that are listening to this podcast, and I still think M&A is a really exciting, challenging field, and anything that's sort of negative that's come out of this study, I found it to be really rewarding and hope they'll pursue this career. I'm always available to both questions or thoughts or ideas. So thank you very much, Andrew, Tracy, and Jermaine. Our academic guest today has been Tracy George, professor of law and political science at Vanderbilt University. We've discussed her article, The Double-Edged Sword of Credentials, Gender, and M&A, which is forthcoming in the BYU Law Review. This article is co-authored with Albert Yoon of the University of Toronto and Mitu Galati of the University of Virginia. We've also been joined by our practitioner commentators, Eva Davis, a partner and chair of the Transactions Department at Winston & Strawn, and Jermaine Gurr, a partner in the M&A practice at White & Case. Tracy, Eva, Jermaine, Thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's been fun. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.